Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome to the 10 Adventures podcast. Uh, We're so happy to have you back. And today we have a really interesting topic. We're talking about the U.S. National Parks with Becky Lomax. Um, Becky is a writer and photographer, and she's actually the author of multiple moon travel guides. And her recent book, The Moon USA National Parks Guide, Uh, won the best guidebook in the Lowell Thomas Travel Journalism Award. So I think we're going to be learning quite a bit about the parks from this woman. So welcome, Becky. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. It's fun to join you. You know, one of the things that really struck me when I was, you know, looking at your website and looking at all of the different books that you've written was just how extensive these books have to be like to cover these huge topics and it got me wondering like how much time does it take to research this and how much research like I I get the feeling you could be spending years and years researching this Uh, you're kind of right about that (laughs) um you know in some ways I've spent my lifetime researching it because I've gone to national parks forever my family that's what we did when i grew up in washington state we we went to the national parks around there so mount rainier and olympic national park and north cascades and then it's kind of been my life ever since is just traveling to national parks not just in the u.s but canada too yeah i noticed that on your website you had a guide to glacier banff and jasper too right but you know not everything in All of my guides is strictly my material. Moon Travel Guides likes to use writers with a local connection to places because they tend to know things better than what I would call a parachute writer that (laughs) drops in for a week and explores and disappears. And so a lot of, especially with the USA National Parks, Moon brought in a lot of other writers to help out on that, and we used the basis of their material to kind of structure the book and fill out all those places. So even when you hit a national park, say, that I haven't been to, um, let me pick one, like Congaree National Park in South Carolina, we had a local writer that we took the text from one of their books, and that gave us more of a flavor of it than if I would have stopped in for a couple days and just gone, oh, well, (laughs) this is the way it always is. Because seasonal stuff affects the parks, you know, and you see a different, really different experience in different times. And that's what the local writers can offer. I guess that makes sense as well, because also like what you experience would change season to season. And if you are just parachuting in the the phrase you used, it would be hard to know that without someone local. Yeah. And how, you know, just how everything changes around the park seasonally, you know, because some parks, they're big in summer and wintertime, they pretty much are snow covered and shut down. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, you know, again, that's something that locals really have the pulse on. So 
that's helpful. Exactly. So how did you get started on writing guidebooks? Um, that's kind of funny. I had a photographer friend, uh, this is almost 20 years ago now, um, who said, hey, Moon Travel Guides is looking for a guidebook author for Glacier National Park in Montana. And I live right outside of the park, and I was a guide in the park, hiking and backpacking guide for 10 years. So I kind of wrote a little note to the acquisitions editor and says, I, I might be interested in doing this, and here's my background. And boom, she called me right back said okay here's what I want you to do I want you to write this in the book proposal and do this I'm sending you a formula proposal so you can sort of mod you know model years after that and she really handheld me through that whole book process and that got me started and then a lot of my books since have been their request the publishing company's request well can you do this one now or can you take on the Yellowstone Grand Teton books or and then the last book I just did that just came out in April which is Moon U.S. and Canadian Rocky Mountains Road Trip that one was my idea because you know living next to Glacier I'm right in the middle of that whole string of Rocky Mountains from Jasper down to Rocky Mountain National Park and so I thought oh Wait, cool. Let's string together all nine of those parks and, and make a road trip format out of it. So, actually, that's a brilliant idea. And uh, I think I'm going to have to pick up that book. I know um, just before Christmas, we did a podcast with all the 10 Adventures staff and they just kind of going through what was their like favorite trip or highlight trip. And many of them said a road trip through the U.S you know, was like their favorite trip of all time. So that's interesting that that was your most recent book. That's great. You mentioned that you've been traveling in the national parks, you know, for ages and ages since you were very young. So you would know them over time. And when we were chatting before we got started with this podcast, you mentioned that there were a lot of big changes that were happening in the national parks and a lot of changes that people, you know, really needed to know about if they had a history in the parks. Yeah, the whole program, it's kind of changed because it used to be, you know, you could just go, the weather's really good. Let's go visit this park next week. And boom, you could go. You could get last minute reservations. You could find a campsite. You could, you know, go wherever you wanted in the park. And that's no longer the case. And a lot of that has, the changes has to do with, substantial increase in visitation to the point where things had to get regulated for safety and for protection for the parks too because there was so much abuse happening with people parking cars oh in meadows and all kinds of places that are just uh you know they ruin the the meadow and it takes especially high elevation it takes a while for that to grow back so there's three main changes people need to be aware of the first one is there's several parks that are requiring reservations now to drive in like rocky mountain national park and glacier national park arches acadia just the section that goes up Cadillac Mountain in there. Um, and Yosemite has a reservation system this summer. It's more for construction for them because they've got, <laughs> they've got huge construction going on. So it's important that you research your park and find out 
are they requiring reservations and when do you need to get those reservations? And in most cases, they're three to six months in advance. And most of them, yeah, most of them have some last minute, like uh, 24 hour to 48 hour out, but that's not the bulk of the permits or the reservations. So that's going to make a really big difference to people if they're planning a trip to those national parks, because you can't just drive up for those ones. And it sounds like the reservations are going to be perhaps a little bit hard to get if you have to book it three to six months ahead of time. Yeah, they're a little bit competitive. (laughs) It's like the day that... um, you know, a reservation is released for a certain date, you've got to be on the website. It's recreation.gov that does all of these. And you've got to be on that website right when it um, the reservations open up first thing in the morning and know what you want, know how to navigate the website and go after it. Otherwise, you won't get one. Yeah, it's tough. That sounds like some of the reservations at the Canadian National Parks. We have those... Um, those dates like the three months or four months ahead of time like in our calendars you know to remind us (laughs) right like trying to get into Lake O'Hara up there exactly exactly that one's impossible (laughs) right right and in addition to roads there's a couple trails too that you now have to have reservations to hike one of them is old rag in Shenandoah it's probably the most popular hike there and the other is Angel's Landing in Zion. So they've, it's just been so crowded that, you know, they're narrow trails in some of those places. And just to get through, you'd have these huge traffic jams of people. And that ends up with creating some safety issues too. Yeah, I, I hiked Angel Falls and I could see if that was getting more and more and more crowded because you're holding on to chains in some situations on a narrow path over a cliff. So if you had too many people, it really would be a safety issue. Exactly. And then the other two things that are getting a lot more reservations required are campgrounds and backpacking permits. And more and more of the parks, especially I would say the big parks that have a lot of campgrounds that are really popular campgrounds, those are the ones that are moving everything onto recreation.gov and doing them in advance. So that old concept, you know, that I grew up with, it was, oh, weather's good, let's go to the park, throw the tent in the car, throw the camp stove in the car, sleeping bags, and take off. And it's not possible anymore, really. It's uh, with some of these parks, you really have to plan ahead now. So that's the advanced planning. Yes. Yeah. Highly recommended now. (laughs) Well, uh, almost necessary, I guess, too, right? You also mentioned that there was a National Park Services app as well. Yes. Yeah. And that's a new thing that they just launched within the last two years and it's been it's taken a little bit to start building all the parks out on it but it's super helpful because a lot of these parks you go to you get, you get inside and there's no cell service so you can't you can't um you know say oh well let's just look this up or google that or whatever you can't um so what they have for each of the parks national parks that's on it you can save that park for offline use 
and have access to it. And then you've got access to information like audio tours, self-guided audio tours for walking or hiking or driving uh, in some cases. Details on a lot of the sightseeing that you might want to do in the different sites. And you can look up the sites. It gives you all the information about it. Hiking trail info, where you can get your park passport stamped. Everybody wants to do that, get the park stamped. And then some of them that have really unique things like Yellowstone. There are six geysers in Yellowstone that the Park Service monitors their eruption times and then bases predictions on their last eruption time. And there's a bunch of, fa yeah, it's really cool. There's a bunch of factors that go into it that allow them to do that. But, you know, if you want to see Old Faithful go off when you go to Yellowstone, look on the app and it'll tell you the next time and you can go, oh, well, we're not even close. We're going to have to catch the one after that or something like that. Yeah, so it's really helpful. Or, you know, you're walking around the Upper Geyser Basin and it's like, huh, wonder when it's going to go off. Oh, 20 minutes we can get there you know so it's it's uh yeah very helpful that sounds really good i was wondering does that app include like outlines of hikes so like if i was in a park and i had a day and i'm like oh i don't know what hike to do and i but i didn't have cell service could i go on the app and find the hikes there yes now some of the parks are still getting all of that info built out but that's a standard thing on most of the parks is to have those hikes there that you could go look up. And the trick is, as long as you've got that park saved uh, for offline use in the app, you'll be able to access it no matter what your cell service is. So super helpful app. Now, you were talking about changes in the national park. Uh, I was wondering, like, if you were seeing climate change affecting the parks or visitors to the park. Yes. And here's what's interesting. You know, most people are aware of climate change in the parks, like, oh, we want to go to Glacier National Park to see it before the glaciers melt, which they're melting pretty fast. <laughs> thinning or we want to go to Glacier Bay in Alaska and watch those tidewater glaciers calve off into the bays there and those are melting back and are soon going to be not even reaching the tidewater. So most people are familiar with that but what's starting to happen is stuff with climate change impacting visitor travel. So extensive wildfires and we saw that last year with sequoia kings it was shut down for a chunk of the summer portions of it were because of that wildfire that was there was so huge and so um so big and so that's one thing another thing is like um especially for the alaska parks the permafrost is melting so denali Last summer, at one point, there's a 90-mile road that just threads back into the park, and that's where all the buses take you, all the tour buses, all the shuttle buses, and um, you can, you, most people go in for a day, and you can hike and do all kinds of stuff. Anyway, stunning. 
and you get in there to Isleson Visitor Center and you're looking at Denali, the peak, if the weather is good. And, you know, you're looking at the tallest peak in, Nor- in North America. So it's pretty impressive. Well, halfway up that road last summer, the permafrost had melted. So it created this whole landslide and it took out part of the road. And so they had, they right away got on, you know, funding sources for fixing it, engineering problems that had to be solved. And one was they have to install a bridge probably to get through that section. And the prediction was it was going to be a two-year closure in order to fix that. So then access all the way into that Isleson area that I was talking about with the fabulous view. Well, (laughs) this spring, the permafrost is melting earlier and it's created more landslide there. So it's just enlarging the problem. So visitors need to be aware of these things because these affect travel. The best sources for to keep totally up to date on it is to go to the nps.gov website, look up the park that you're considering going to and read all of their alerts. Alerts are usually the things right at the top front page that you can see. And they'll tell you major closures for wildfires or landslides or whatever. So it's, uh, yeah, it's of concern now for travelers because it's affecting how you travel, not just I have to go to some place and see something before it's gone. Well, also, your trip might not be happening, too. <laughs> you know, like if there's a wildfire, uh, you might not be going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's definitely, um, definitely an issue. You know, you were talking about some of these changes, you know, so that with the large influx of visitors needing reservations for both the front country and the back country. And that got me thinking about the crowds because I know in some parks, crowds have historically been an issue and it sounds like now they're even more of an issue. I was wondering if you had any advice for people about escaping the crowds like are there parks that are better for getting away from crowds or are there areas of parks one could seek out if you wanted a bit more solitude absolutely one of the things is the major crowded time in almost every park is about nine to four so if you figure like in summer there's several hours of daylight in the morning before nine o'clock and after four o'clock when most people are so exhausted, they're back at their hotel trying to, you know, put their feet up and then get dinner, go out from four to nine and in the evening. And actually when I go to Yellowstone, which is one of those super crowded parks, um, and I go there a lot, those times are gorgeous. And you don't have the crowds on the roads. You don't have the crowds at the sites and the lighting for photography is like incredible. As that was what I was thinking as you were talking about that, because don't they call that the golden hour for for photography, like where you have that orange, you know, pinky light, you know, just perfect. Yeah, and you don't have that midday overhead glare <laughs> that's on everything. The other thing is to go to less traveled sections of the parks. You know, all of the parks tend to have a place that is not not as well traveled as others. 
I'm thinking of something like Grand Teton National Park. It has this 20-mile road that goes right under the Tetons and then all these short hikes into all these lakes. Super crowded in summer. Well, get off of that and get hiking up on the Teton Crest and you're not going to be around the crowds. You're going to be by yourself up there. Now, granted, it takes quite a bit of grunt work to get up <laughs> up to the Teton Crest, but um, well worth it. Oh, my gosh. Totally stunning. And if I, let's say I was going to a national park that I didn't know very well, is there any way I could figure out which are the um, less traveled areas? You know, you can. Um, and if you look at national parks and look at where all their major, oh, you got to see this type of sites are, those are in the real heavy use area. And then you can explore some of the, you know, other places like, oh, hey, there's this valley and glacier going up to this place called Two Medicine. And that doesn't get nearly the visitation that say going to the sun road does that is the famous place everybody wants to drive um same with like rocky mountain has the same type of thing other entrances to areas that are less crowded i guess if you were on instagram and you were seeing a lot of photos of one site chances are that one's going to be crowded i bet (laughs) Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a major clue. The other thing is going in the off season is, oh, it's amazing. Like I can't recommend Yellowstone enough in the winter. It is, it's just incredible to go in on a snow coach tour or go in and spend the night at Old Faithful. And in summer you go out to watch Old Faithful Geyser and you'll be there (laughs) in this kind of arena around the geyser with uh, a couple thousand other people to watch that geyser erupt. Well, in winter when you go, you might be there with 20 people. And it's a pretty amazing experience to see. Plus, because of the cold temperatures, every pore in that landscape is just dumping steam out. So the whole place looks like on fire without flames or the stinky smoke. (laughs) That sounds amazing. It's funny that you mention uh, Yellowstone in winter because I I met a woman when I was in a backcountry ski hut who said that was her favorite trip. Like we were in the middle of these amazing mountains and she was saying, oh, you know, year after year, I always go to Yellowstone in the winter because she just enjoyed it so much. So that's interesting that you bring it up. Yeah, and I've gone several times for that very reason. It's just like, it's gorgeous, otherworldly, and absolutely wonderful without the crowds. And how about some of the smaller national parks? Are those a way to escape crowds? Yes, they're absolutely perfect. One of the things I would recommend is like going to, say, Boisier's National Park up off of Minnesota. It's actually right on the Canadian border. Uh, Yeah, but it's a series of giant lakes. And so what a lot of people do is they rent houseboats and go out and camp in the houseboats at all these different campsites. And that's a place you can get a lot of solitude, which is pretty cool. You can also, um, visiting roadless parks, for instance, Channel Islands National Park off the coast of the California, um, you can go camp there overnight. And once the day tour boat disappears, 
there's not many people there at all. So that's pretty cool. Isle Royale in Michigan is the, Lake Michigan is the same, same thing. It's, you know, day visitors go out and kind of clog right around the boat dock area and little hikes there, but go out, get a backcountry permit or stay at a lodge and you're going to have the place almost to yourself and nights. It'll be just really precious because not that many people are there. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of any of these national parks. So, I mean, that's great, right? Because it makes you start thinking outside of uh, the box and, you know, seeing something new with hopefully fewer people, which always makes it even more special, right? Right, yeah. The huge biggie to get away from people is I got to say there's Alaska because you've got Lake Clark, Kobuk Valley, and Gates of the Arctic National Park among others that are those three, um, you have to fly in to get to those parks. They're roadless. So when you fly in, there's there's not lodges and other things you're staying at. So you're camping in really remote areas wherever you get dumped off of <laughs> the flight that takes you in. So it's kind of a a really getaway spot. You're not kidding. That sounds like I need a guide kind of spot for me. (laughs) And there are guides to get you in there. So yeah. And the trick, you know, trick is if you're, um, you know, you can do in some of those places, river rafting, hiking, there's all kinds of activities to do. But if you're on your own, you really got to know what you're doing because you are self-supported and you have to be at your pickups place on the day and the time that your plane is coming in to pick you up. Because if you're not there, they're not going to go looking for you all over the place, you know, because they're big parks. Can you tell us a bit about the newest national park? It's New River Gorge National Park in West Virginia, and it is the oldest river in the U.S., it's, it's kind of a small park, but it's got fabulous outdoor activities. It's a rock climbing mecca, which um, totally surprised me when I first heard about the park because I thought, huh, what's there? <laughs> and then started reading and went, whoa, <laughs> it, it's basically world class rock climbing there. And then it's got scenic drives that you can do, a lot of hikes. One of them's into Sandstone Falls, which is right on the river. And then probably the big thing I would recommend everybody do when they go there is rafting. And you can either do whitewater sections of the river or you can do calmer sections that you can actually paddle canoes and kayaks down, things like that, or just float down. Yeah. That would be so nice on in the middle of a hot summer. No fooling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Now, with all these reservations now that people are needing and planning ahead of time, it, it kind of strikes me that it might, you know, heading off for a camping holiday in the national parks might start being a little bit more expensive than we used to think of for, you know, going to the parks. Um, Do you have any tips for people on how to save money when visiting the parks? Yes, there's a couple things. One is most of these reservations that like to drive into parks, most of them are two to five dollars. So not, not a lot at all. So that's really cool. So don't be deterred by the fact that you have to get one more or 
you know, spend just a wee bit more money. It's not that much there. And backpacking reservations tend to run anywhere from, you know, 20 to 40, depending where they are. Sometimes they cover the actual permit fee. Sometimes it's just a reservation fee and you still have a per person fee on top of that. Just depends. Camping reservations are kind of where they've always been. They're, you know, in the 20 to $40 range, depending on the amenities that are at a campground. Two big ones that I always I like to make sure people are aware of. Um, one is camping is a great inexpensive way to go. <laughs> you know, it um, and it's fun. And some people say, well, I don't want to get up in the middle of the night and have to walk to the, you know, toilet down the road. And it's like, that's, I love doing that because that's the time you get to see the stars. And so many of these parks are dark sky parks. So when you get out there at night, there's the Milky Way right overhead or this incredibly bright full moon that you don't even need a flashlight to get to the toilet with. And so that's pretty cool experience to have. The other thing is the national parks in the U.S., similar to Canada too, sell annual passes. And so if you're planning to visit, I would say, three or more national parks in any given year, buy an annual pass because you'll save money that way. And an annual pass costs $80. It gets you into every single national park and all the rest of the federally owned lands, such as Forest Service lands and... Um, national park units that might be historic parks or things like that and well worth it definitely and you don't have to be a u.s citizen to get it so anybody can great advice all those separate fees would definitely be adding up i loved your comment about how getting up at night to go to the toilet was actually something you love because you get to see the sky and Wow, like that really hit me because it is all framing. It also brought to mind, um, I was camping last summer in the Canadian Rockies and I had to get up to visit the toilet. And as I got out of my tent, this moon was so bright in the corner and then in front of the moon, so kind of, you know, surrounded by the light of the moon was a massive elk with antlers and everything and it was like phenomenal it was so phenomenal and um we were camping with some other people and I told them about this in the morning and the guys looked at me and they said weren't you scared like you know that it might kind of come charging at you and I was like oh I, I didn't even think about that you know it was just so phenomenal so you're right it, it is uh like what what if I wasn't getting up I wouldn't have seen that yeah and it's you know being out at night not that I'd recommend in bear country doing a whole lot of hiking at night but getting out at night and seeing those things the night sky the moon the wildlife that's out there it's really fun really fun. Yeah, it sure is. One thing that sometimes people are interested in seeing when they're visiting the parks is, or experiencing, would be Indigenous culture. And are there ways that people can experience that in the parks? Yes, and it's getting more and more and more ability to do that. Uh, one of the parks that I think of right away 
is Mesa Verde in Colorado, and it has about 5,000 archaeological sites and then all these cliff dwellings where the ancestral Puebloans climb down or up cliffs and then in these open alcoves they built like towns of um, you know out of stone and everything uh, to live to store food all of that kind of stuff so it's always it's been a national park for quite some time it was one of our earliest ones but now you can actually go do with your NPS app, you can, <laughs> you can do a scenic drive tour with stops. I think it's like 12 or 13 stops. And the tour is narrated by a Laguna Puebloan woman who's a ranger there. And so she does this fabulous job of combining historical information about the ancestral Puebloans and then mixing in her modern, you know, people, how they view it and what they would do and how important it is to them. And oh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful tour. And then you've got things like Grand Canyon that just, um, they've always had Desert Watchtower there, which is this big stone artifice with some Hopi art inside uh, that was painted on the walls and so forth, Hopi symbols. And it now has become the, let's see if I can get it right. It's the first intertribal cultural heritage site for the National Park Service. And now they have um, several of the different groups of people there, indigenous people will bring in their crafts and their arts and demonstrate how they do it and talk to people about their life and what's important to them and that's a pretty cool experience because you're getting firsthand you're not just going and looking at something or a display that's sitting there you're getting firsthand from real people on both of those experiences that sounds really fun and really interesting too to get that input so people always want to know your faves. So I thought we'd do like a quick run through of some of your favorites. Of course, I know they're all fabulous, but which are some of your favorite parks for hiking? Oh my goodness. Well, gotta fess up. I live really close to Glacier National Park, so I'm that's a fave. Um, I used to also hike uh, guide hiking and backpacking there. So that's always been a favorite. Grand Teton for backpacking is a favorite because that Teton Crest Trail is something else. But one of the places, it's actually a park I grew up visiting, was Olympic National Park in Washington State. And it's pretty cool because it's the diversity there is something else because you can hike and backpack in mountains in rainforest and on the coast. So very, very different ecosystems. And then I have to throw in two, I gotta throw in Death Valley. Um, I was just down there this February and hiking and the diversity there was, it's just incredible. Because in two days, we were hiking on salt flats, hiking in narrow slot canyons, hiking to arches or a bridge, natural bridge, I should say, 
hiking on sand dunes and then hiking around a crater and it was just like oh and then in badlands it was like <laughs> we did all, we strung together all these shorter you know four mile and under hikes and every single one of them in two days was totally different and it's uh that sort of bi- biodiversity that's pretty incredible down there to be able to hike in and experience. And then part of the time, like if you go to the lowest elevation in Badwater Basin, you're below sea level, but you're looking up at a peak, telescope peak, right across the valley that is over 11,000 feet high and has snow all over it. It's one of those places you walk around with your mouth wide open half the time because it's just so incredibly diverse and amazing and so the hiking there reflects that so if you were to list your favorites for biodiversity i'm guessing that those two that you just mentioned olympic um, and death valley would be at the top they would definitely there's also a lot of others you know one on the east coast or eastern side of the country that's has a lot of diversity and people don't realize it is great smoky mountain national park I see that referenced a lot. Right. And it's the most traveled national park. So hands down, lots of people on that. And the hiking is incredible. You got everything from real short hikes to the uh, Appalachian Trail that cuts right through the middle of it. And the diversity there is something else because you've got, you know, mossy forests and high balds. That's what they call the peaks that kind of stick up a little bit above the um, forest. So you've got, you can see landscape there. And then they've got these historical sections that are uh, pretty incredible where, you know, small communities lived and grew crops and farmed and had cattle and whatnot and today they're all historical parts of the park one's Cades Cove you can go do a bicycle ride every Wednesday because they close it to traffic pretty cool it's a lot of diversity there and really fun different things to do especially hiking lots of hiking how about car camping where if you were to be car camping what would be where would be some of your favorite places some of the parks have way more campgrounds than others like great smokies has over 10 um olympic has over 10 glaciers got over 10 yellowstone um but a lot of parks don't have quite that many campgrounds they've got more in the way of lodges or towns surrounding with things so i always put those parks with lots of campgrounds as places to go but that said i gotta say there's some parks in the southwest they may not have the volume of campgrounds but they're really fun to go camp and hike especially in springtime or fall summer you know go but they're a little hot (laughs) so i'm thinking of utah has five national parks there that are just incredible wonders to go camp and visit Bryce, Zion, Canyonlands, Capitol Reef, which is the one of the five that's the less traveled. And so that's the where to go to escape some people too. And then Arches National Park. So, and the cool thing is if you can get a campground reservation in those parks, you know, that's pretty much all who is there at night, which is pretty cool. You're, you're back to that um, away from the crowds experience. 
you were mentioning that group of parks and I was wondering about linking all of those parks in a springtime road trip. Yes, that's probably one of the one of the spring road trips I've done the most. I think it's mostly to escape Montana in late spring when it's uh, it's mud season and so many trails are still snow packed and so forth. So yeah, get in the car and go to the Southwest where everything's warm and you've got these luscious, wonderful reds and oranges and uh, pink rocks that are just incredible to absorb but you can easily link up those five parks I mentioned in Utah with tagging on Grand Canyon too and then if you've got loads of time you can also go further south and tag in parks in New Mexico and Arizona and Texas if you want and those I would recommend doing before like hit them in early spring because Big Bend in Texas gets hot 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 so you'd, you'd want to do those like Guadalupe, Carlsbad Caverns, um, White Sands National Park, Saguaro, Petrified Forest, all of those you'd want to get done before things got really really hot in spring but other than that those southwest parks are great in spring and fall. Yeah, I, I'm thinking like now we have plans plans for next spring. All of us living in the North Pool want to get a bit of heat in the spring. We can just do an epic road trip and camp and hike and backpack. That would be fantastic. And I'm assuming another one of your favorite road trips would be uh, the one you wrote just wrote the book on, Through the Rockies. Exactly. Yeah. That book I wrote, it covers Jasper, Banff, Yoho, Kootenai, Waterton, Glacier, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and Rocky Mountain National Park. So those are, it's best done more in summer because you're going to have more things accessible in terms of hiking trails and campgrounds that are open and things like that. But um it's my favorite terrain and I live right in the middle of it. So I've done a ton of trips north and a ton of trips south, you know, to, uh, to visit all of those for quite some time, quite a few years. Amazing. Well, that's another one I'll do, but I'll have to do it in the summer. If we were to do that, though, which parks would we need reservations to drive through? Any of those ones for the rock? Because those are all big, popular parks. They are. Yeah. The driving reservations, you need those for Glacier and Rocky Mountain national park so that would be something we couldn't just wing we'd have to plan that one out right but you can get tickets one to two days in advance it's just the competition for those is much higher fantastic well it's been great talking to you becky i've learned so much and i've got a lot of ideas for some upcoming trips now so that's really fun and and i think First on my list is going to be that driving tour in the spring when it's freezing cold and for me raining um, all winter. Now, if any of you wanted to get a hold of Becky or look at some of her work, uh, you could uh, contact her via her website, which is beckylomax.com. She's also on Twitter and Instagram. 
at the uh, handle at Becky J. Lomax. We'll link those in the show notes. And of course, you can see many of her books if you're looking at the Moon uh, Travel Guides for these national parks. Um, And those are also available through her website as well. So thanks again, Becky. Great talking to you. Thank you. I really had fun chatting. (laughs) Cheerio. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com? where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.